Thank you for coming out today, and thank you very much for having me out to, to just talk with you. This is newish work. I've been writing for about the last 15 months on this project, and this piece hasn't been taken out yet. Um, and and I, use that, I note that at the intro, um, because over the years, I and my colleagues have seen a range of senior job talks that surprised us in, in various ways, and mostly unpleasantly. Um, and over the years, we sort of diagnosed what happens. And I, I am afraid that I might find myself in a similar position of, of not coming and doing the old ebook goodies because I've published those and I'm done thinking about them, but bringing out work that perhaps isn't quite as far along as it should be to discuss, but I, I'm hoping that is not the case. So the project today, uh, the new book, it's chronological, and I'm going to talk about the second third of it. Um, and in order to do that, I'm going to give you a quick recap of the first third. Uh, but mostly, we're going to focus on the years of 2010 to 2014. So first, though, I must explain the asterisk at the title in terms of what television is it that I'm talking about. So really quickly, there are lots of businesses involved in the television industry. Uh, in broadcasting, there's really two. There's the network business. Um, and the station business, they're very similar. They're both distribution businesses based on advertising. One's more local and one is national. And then in the cable, in the realm of cable, there is the business of cable satellite services. Those are the companies like Comcast, Cox, the folks that provide service to your home. Uh, and then there's also the business of cable channels, uh, which is largely divorced from that cable service business. It's important to note. And their business is much like that of the broadcast networks, except they also receive some revenue from those cable and satellite providers uh, for their services. For the most part, the in and you can't completely separate them. Um, one, for reasons of conglomeration, and, and many of them are co-owned, but also because the businesses are very independent. But for the most part, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is the nature of the studio business. And these are, this is the aspect of television production the making of series, the selling of that content, um, both initial, for initial runs and then subsequently after. And so also the television that I'm talking about is mostly long form series uh, and scripted series, uh, which is not to say that other forms of television are in any way unimportant. Uh, sports, news, also very important, but different. And at this point, too different to sort of talk about in one single institutional context. So. I'm not, when I say television, well, sports isn't dying either, um, but its story is different. So that's the story I'm telling today. So the book project that I'm in the midst of is titled Being Wired, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. And this project started from two questions that I believed were related, and I still do. Um, in fact, I'm now confident of it. Um, but they seemed a bit far afield uh, to those that I was trying them out on as I initially started. So the first question was, what happened to television? And I mean this in the sense of, what's the answer to that question? Uh, if, if instead of going to graduate school in 1996, I had entered a coma and just awakened, um, I, among other things, might ask, what happened to television? And my sense was, even though we have lots of people studying this in more depth and detail than ever before, the answer probably would have gone something like, well, there was The Sopranos, and then Mad Men, and Netflix. And indeed, those are three important milestones in this transition. But the, the story of the last 20 years of how television has changed hasn't, or hadn't, 
believe, uh, been systematically explored and explained and understood. And so my first question was, was what happened and how? And so the book traces two different disruptions. And the first one is the emergence of original scripted cable series. And the way that the emergence of that textual form transforms television as a storytelling medium. Not just because cable starts telling different stories, but because the influence of cable then also influences what broadcast can do and the imagination of what television storytelling overall can be. And to really appreciate the nature of this as a disruption, it is important to go back in the Wayback Machine uh, and remember what cable was just 20 years ago. So what were people watching on cable in the summer of 1997? And so this is a list. Um, it's just down to 25, and I understand you probably can't read it. Um, I have underlined in yellow shows that are not shows on Nickelodeon. And I have this list from 25 to 50. And from 25 to 50, it is all but two shows on Nickelodeon. So the short answer to what were people watching on cable 20 years ago is Nickelodeon. And it's, it's easy to forget how quickly cable transformed itself. So what, what is there underlined in yellow? Uh, at the top, we have USA uh, Wrestling, and uh, TNT also has wrestling. So that's what many people are watching on cable. Um, but we don't have much in the way of original content here. Uh, Real World is in production at this point. Otherwise, it's uh, The Godfather, uh, re-airings of existing theatricals. And honestly, what takes up the most programming hours on cable isn't represented here in terms of what a lot of people were watching but it's old broadcast series. And so just 20 years ago, cable was not a place of original programming, but largely reruns of various kinds, reruns in quotes. And the thing that goes with that that's also easy to forget, just 20 years removed, was the perception of cable at that point. Uh, it, it, cable programming was the punchline of late night jokes, you know, especially Lifetime movies, but, but all of it, it this was not a place where creatives went. This was not a place where smart people spent a lot of time viewing. And so if we think about this, 20 years, like that, that's not that long of a time for as extraordinary as a of a transition as has occurred. So what happened, right? There's a good story here. And so that was, that was the first bit is figuring out what happened. And I didn't start out with 1996 uh, intentionally. I knew the date was somewhere in the mid-1990s, but 1996, is the point of a number of important pivots for both institutional reasons and programming reasons. So the Telecom Act of 1996 might be something people are generally aware of. That, that's a piece of it. Um, and the relevant bit of that legislation was that it opened up competition. And so it was the case that cable lines could only provide video content. And that, that piece of legislation said that telephony providers, you can compete. You can develop a video infrastructure, and you can begin offering that service. And, and that's important. It really doesn't become all that important, but at that point, the coming of competition was notable. So it really takes until 2005, 2006 for telephony providers to even begin doing that. And even then, they really only do so in major cities and in particularly lucrative markets. So I, I believe you have a fair bit of competition here in Ann Arbor, not so much. So competition is coming. But competition actually also arrives in 1996, which is the first year direct broadcast satellite really emerges and starts to compete with cable and is more competitive than many expected. 
And so that's DirecTV and, and Dish and you know, a handful of other competitors initially, but now that market's really down to two. And, and technologically, satellite offers a digital service. And as a result, they have, big, they have broader capacity. They can bring you more channels. Um, and, at this, and they also have a better signal quality. And so it's at this moment, okay, satellite is here and it's competing with us. Telcos, they're gonna start competing with us. And that the cable industry recognizes that it's finally time. It's actually way overdue, but it's finally time to rebuild the infrastructure. Because the other thing that we forget about cable in 1996 was that it was an analog system and capacity was a real issue. And cable was really maxing out at about 30 channels. And so it's this coming competition that leads the cable providers to recognize that they need to rebuild their infrastructure. And it's at that point they build this, this digital system that becomes later, really important later. We're not there yet. But they're not, no one's talking about the internet at this point. Everyone is, you know, this is being done to compete with, with satellite service. This, is, this really is the coming of 100, 200, 300 channels. It's gonna be amazing. And it's that potential. And it's even before many people have that digital capability that the number of cable channels quickly begins to multiply. And so it's, it's those providers who were offering wrestling and, well, Nickelodeon has its kind of niche, it was set. It's those channels that were just sort of eking out this existence by being different from broadcast. That's enough. When you're, there were only 30 competitors, being different from broadcast was enough. Yeah, there were no TiVos, there was no streaming. No. But they recognized that in an environment of 100 channels, we're gonna have to develop programming that stands out. And this is what creates the environment in which, in which the push to create original series occurs. And, and it doesn't always, it doesn't go so well at first. Uh, our first pictures there, Silk Stockings uh, and Pacific Blue, for those of you who don't remember, that was basically Baywatch on bikes. Um, the first efforts by cable channels to create original series uh, were largely derivative of broadcast programming and produced on lower budgets, which was not a great combination. Um, and so generally uninspired. But around 1997, and, and actually you know, for a number of years before that, because the, uh, the first series, um, I'm gonna talk about La Femme Nikita, which was, I'd argue, the first successful ad-supported original cable series on USA, and Oz, and importantly HBO had a number of comedies, but Oz is the first successful drama on a subscriber-supported network. They both launched in 1997 um, within a few months, and they both had longer production histories, and so they didn't just appear fully formed in 1997, um, but La Femme in particular had a very, a fascinatingly complicated uh, history in, in bringing it to screen. And with both of these shows, the cable environment identified distinction. They needed to be distinct in some way in order to compete. And that's what led the production away from what broadcasting had done and away from trying to, to, do, to, to model broadcasting shows, broadcast shows and to develop new programming. So the history throughout the late 1990s is fairly well known. Uh, most people could have explained that piece of the story, right? Um, following Oz in every year after HBO launches another new series that brings a great deal of attention, a great deal of accolades. Um, and so the late 1990s and into the early 2000s, it's this remarkable time in which, can you believe that he can do this on television? And isn't this amazing how television is being changed? And, and, and folks like myself are saying, well, yes. The programming is amazing, but we do have to keep in mind that HBO as a subscriber-based 
funding model. And even though it is TV, contrary to their advertising at the time, um, it really is an entirely different business model than what advertiser-supported television is. So as we're in the, these years, it's, it's not yet clear. Like, is this happening for all of television, or is this really just the terrain of subscriber support? But in the early 2000s, then, we do see ad-supported cable channels following suit. And there really isn't any, any big success following La Femme Nikita in 1997 until 2002. In 2002, uh, The Shield and Monk launch again, um, very close to each other. And both are successful, but they're very different shows and successful in different ways. And so they begin to illustrate the range of possibility for distinction within the cable competitive environment. And then I note Mad Men as sort of the next milestone in this process uh, coming on in, in 2007 as really a show that, that answers the question about whether a certain kind of artistic and creative accomplishment is only the terrain of, of subscriber-supported television. And I think it, the answer is no, this can be done on ad-supported television as well. And so, so 2007, here we are 10 years uh, from when La Femme Nikita struggled to be made. Um, and, and, and the entire perception of cable has changed. I mean, that, that perception has changed not just with audiences who are, who are now expect to go to cable to watch a show, but importantly, it has also changed from on the industry side. So the front half of the book in, in tracing this first disruption, a number, I do production histories of a number of these shows to, to explore you know, how it was that they came to existence, what were the challenges, and trying to see what kind of common themes can, can be gleaned. And so I've done interviews with the executives um, at these channels as, as the shows were launching, as well as with uh, the creative talent behind them. And this consistent story kept emerging that, that, that's almost hard to imagine, you know, circa, well, it would have been even hard to imagine already in, in 2007, but the executives talking about how they couldn't even get anyone to talk to them, how they would go to an agency ready to fund, you know, give me a writer and give me your talent and we will make a series for them, and no agents would even show up. And so that's just, again, within a decade, by 2007, you, know, you try to get a meeting at FX with, a, with an idea, you know, an established talent, and, and already you know, it, it was too late. or you know, like they, they had become the place to already go and sell ideas. So it's a, it's a really profound change in a very short period of time. So to talk a little bit more just about the nature of the front half of the book um, that is exploring the series more specifically, it's a grounded examination of particular series and, and, and developing, this isn't a history that previously existed, but uh, a trajectory that, that I have, have developed. Um, and there are case studies of the production histories that illustrate the complicated factors. Um, and so there's a, an interesting bit of industrial knowledge, I think, or in, knowledge interesting to industrial scholars about how it is that you overcome these challenges, like no one wanting to work with you. Um, and, and, and it's, in, the, in many cases, the, the challenges of being the first were, were amazingly complicated. And like, studios didn't want to produce content. Like you had networks putting the money on the table, and the studios saying, yeah, you know, it's really, nah, it's not worth our time. Um, and so that those were the challenges uh, early on in explaining why we didn't, or why cable didn't produce shows um, before 1996-97. All right, back to the start. So the other piece, what is question number two? My question number two was how is it that cable, 
and talking cable service providers here, which was an industry that most thought was on the verge of death for most of the early 2000s. Um, it was likely to be about to be killed by the internet, um, and it, was, it had all this debt from doing all this big infrastructure build, so Wall Street was very, um, had, had really deflated the stocks. So how did cable, an industry that everyone thought was on the verge of death, end up with the key to the future as the dominant and mostly monopoly pipe of internet service into the home? And so that's where we get to the second disruption, which is how broadband distribution revolutionizes the distribution of video. And so the book is structured uh, chronologically, as I mentioned, in three different stages. Uh, mostly I'm going to talk to you now about when the internet brought us TV, 2010 to 2014. And, and yes, just, uh, I'll talk more about why 2010 later. Um, but given the kind of questions that I'm looking at and the, the, the transition of the legacy television industry, it's really not until 2010 um, that, these, that there's enough of different distribution technologies, distribution services uh, to really begin to have the conversation. So I'm also going to read just a little bit. Now, Being Wired charts the demise of the broadcast paradigm, its replacement with a short-lived broadcast cable paradigm, and then the post-network era of broadband distribution. The word paradigm isn't one most encounter every day, but it is helpful because it is a term that encompasses how something functions, but also how it is thought of and imagined. Paradigm is used here as a broad framework that includes how television is understood by television viewers and those working in its industries. The broadcast paradigm is still very much in place in the mid-1990s when this book begins, and includes all the dominant expectations of what television is and can be, how television is made, and what television programming looks like. Paradigm change is uncommon. It requires a fundamental reconsideration of what something is to occur on a broad scale, rather than simply among a select few. As such, it is often difficult to see in the moment it is happening. And this was why, or this was true for US television. For much of the early 2000s, the process of paradigm change was misunderstood as the death of television. Per its subtitle, Being Wired pieces together the gradual story of how television was revolutionized, a story not of death, but of the collision of new technologies, changing business strategies, and unprecedented storytelling, and a society's response to this collision. And so in short, part of what the, my argument is is that even though when we get to 2010 and we get these programming services that begin to redefine television in, in these new and interesting ways, I'm thinking Netflix, Hulu, and eventually Amazon, you know, only once they emerge were we able to look back and recognize that actually what we thought was television wasn't characteristic of the medium of television, but television as distributed by broadcast. Broadcast signals are scarce and limited requiring a single message to be sent from one to many. That scarcity required the linear schedule, led to the liveness of television and its constant flow from one program to the next, what Lisa Gittleman might call protocols that were so entrenched in the experience of television that they came to seem inherent to the medium rather than as characteristic of broadcasting as a distribution system. It is no wonder that so many were certain of the death of television. Broadband distribution seemed to unmoor television from traits believed intrinsic to it. But in fact, 
These were merely strategies long ago adopted to cope with characteristics, limitations maybe, of broadcast technology. Faced with a new mechanism for distribution, television could cast off its previous logics and establish new ones. So this is a rough continuum of change that I'm working with. If you know that television will be revolutionized, I work there with the periods of the network era, multi-channel transition, and a post-network era. And this project has, as I've said, sort of required going back and, and excavating with much more detail the chronology of change. And I was writing the television we revolutionized in 2005, and you know, sort of there was a certain uncertainty about where we were in a process of change that has, has clarified, at least to some degree at this point. But the, the notion of the periods map on very, very closely in terms of the network era as being the period of a broadcast paradigm, the multi-channel transition as a period of broadcast cable paradigm, and then finally a post-network era of broadband distribution. And then also layered on here is William's notion of um, the phases of technological change um, going from emergent to dominant to residual to understand why we have, you know, it's, not, it's never a clean break, but you know, the period of transition in which we have all of these logics taking place in different ways. So what happened from 2010 to 2014? In many ways, the moment of the long-anticipated face-off between television and new media arrived in 2010, but few even noticed. Rather than a battle to the death, legacy television and broadband television distributors became neighbors. A surprising symbiosis emerged. Legacy television realized broadband distributors could provide a new revenue stream, while the broadband distributors desperately needed legacy television content to woo consumers to try their services in order to reacculturate their expectations of watching television. So a legacy television is any television entity that existed before the broadcast era or broadband era, um, USA, AMC, FX on cable, CBS, NBC on broadcast, and then our broad, well, HBO is complicated. Um, and then Hulu and Netflix are broadband delivered, uh, other neighbors. The broadband distributors entered somewhat as wolves in sheep's clothing. Distracted by new licensing revenue, legacy television allowed broadband distributors to expose audiences to a new distinctive way of viewing. And thus began the beginning of the end of the broadcast cable paradigm. Part of the reason there wasn't a battle to the death was because understandings of television unexpectedly and somewhat unexplainably evolved to encompass most all non-feature film length video. Before it happened, the shift to non-linear, by which linear means a schedule, it has to be watched at a certain time, non-linear is any sort of on-demand or streamed content. The shift to non-linear viewing that broadband distribution allowed was so outside the paradigm that it was impossible to imagine how television could be distributed on the internet, or how programming watched on screens other than the living room set would remain television. But when the capability to stream emerged and people began viewing on laptops, tablets, mobile phone screens, and even transferring broadband stream video to living room screens, it was simply accepted as television. It seemed just as difficult at that point to explain how an episode of a television show originally produced for a legacy broadcast network or cable channel became something other than television because it was transmitted over the internet. And so, it was all television. Part of the explanation for this phenomenon resulted from what broadband delivered video was most watched. 
And though some futurists had predicted an overthrow of the legacy media industries by empowered amateur users who would make and share their own content, this did not come to pass. Certainly, content distributed through YouTube from non-legacy entities became central to the video consumption of some. But most audiences, particularly those willing to spend money on video, instead appreciated how broadband distribution allowed more convenient ways of viewing legacy media content. The most watched broadband distributed content in this, these years was originally created for television, whether daily show clips or music videos on YouTube, or the on-demand access to content provided by Netflix and Hulu. Rather than killing the content creation side of the television business, the internet instead expanded viewers' control and content choices. And in, in writing this and talking about this, I'm reminded of this moment in January of 2007 where Chris Anderson of The Long Tail um, spoke, gave a keynote before the National Association of Television Programming Executives and basically made this argument you know, that, that, that empowered uh, amateurs were, that this is the content people really wanted and that the established industry really needed to be concerned for their, business, their content creation business. And, and I note that I, I make this point not to say, look, he kind of got it wrong, but in that moment, which was not long ago, uh, that seemed feasible. And so part of this, too, is, is pulling apart what we have learned in a short period of time about the nature of, of media transitions. The implications of the internet for television had been predicted as dire and apocalyptic. But at first, broadband distribution instead provided ways to watch television that made the abundance of programming manageable and a self-determined experience possible. And so it was that a period of detente initially emerged. Without question, the detente was mostly enabled by the injection of revenue Netflix offered the studios in license fees. The fact that the ad dollars moving to digital video were not coming out of legacy television spending, but from direct mail and similar budgets. And that early television broadband, that early broadband distributed Goliaths, Netflix and HBO Go, were subscriber supported. In other words, all could coexist until someone's business model foundered. And I just want to hit that, that point about ad spending, uh, because if you see often uh, the headlines in trade publications and even general newspapers, it's sort of consistently about um, the 400% increase in digital ad spending. And, and those sorts of headlines are possible because that started at zero. But it's still the case that online video ads make up just one-tenth of the legacy television uh, ad spend. And so it isn't a case that those two industries um, have been duking it out over dollars. And, and certainly, there's going to continue to be adjustments over time. Um, but that's an important piece of, of really understanding what has and hasn't happened. The neighborly relations dissolved. There are endless slides about the death of television, let me tell you. The neighborly relations dissolved once broadband distributors moved, from moved into producing original series and legacy providers developed their own over-the-top applications that delivered video by broadband. So over-the-top is this industry vernacular uh, for the idea of video going over-the-top, I guess, of cable boxes. Um, but it's video that's streamed by broadband. Um, so it's a complicated term when it really just means broadband-delivered TV, but over-the-top and OTT for short. But for a time, roughly the period from 2010 to 2014, the legacy and new television industries coexisted in the first stage of the post-network era of broadband distribution. 
Broadband distribution allowed new ways of viewing and changed the culture's experience of television, while it also required the industry to remake norms and practices. There was no reason the legacy television industry couldn't reassert its previous control, but it is rare that an opportunity of such sizable change occurs. The legacy industry gradually incorporated broadband distribution into its previous practices, but within just four years, it was clear that the scale of change was not evolutionary, but revolutionary. And the coming change is, is the last third or fourth of the book, uh, which is disaggregation, or the coming apart. So the coming apart of the way in which television had previously been bundled, whether we want to talk about the bundling of a package of cable channels, or even the bundling involved in the entity of a channel or network itself. Though broadband distributed video existed before 2010, I use this as the year demarcating its start for the questions this project considers because of a confluence of desired content and devices for viewing that emerged that year. And because the focus here is on long form video and what happened to the legacy television industry. Internet distributed video had been technologically possible earlier, but the experience was decidedly inferior, content very limited, and computer screens were assumed the only screen alternative to television. Perceptions of computers as lean-forward technologies and television as one from which le viewers lean back diminished concerns of television screens being replaced by computers earlier in the 2000s, but by 2010, smartphones and tablets led to a reimagining of viewing, and laptop sales overtook those of desktops, which began to make this transition seem more reasonable. Yet still, evidence of cord cutting, and cord cutting is the term the industry used to describe people who cancel cable subscriptions and instead take all their video content via broadband distribution. Evidence of cord cutting hardly matched the apocalyptic predictions that circulated within the industry. The main metric for the industry was how many homes canceled cable subscriptions, and the dominant conversation invoked the imprecise and euphemistic terminology of over the top. By focusing on actions as extreme as cord cutting and terminology of OTT, the real and important transition, one that was worthy of the summits and blog posts and articles that OTT received and even continues to receive, was lost. Broadband had emerged as a mechanism of distributing television content. That mechanism brought affordances impossible for previous mechanisms of delivery and thus functionally required paradigm change for nearly all aspects of making and experiencing television. Most crucially, broadband distribution enabled personalized delivery of content. It turned the old model of a single entity sending out one show to everyone on its head and allowed each individual to select what and when to watch. This was a radical paradigm change in the experience of television. Not talking about broadband distribution in these terms as a change in delivery mechanism obscured the related consequences. Most all of the normal practices of broadcasters and cable channels resulted from the affordances of their distribution system and the requirement to push a linear schedule of shows organized by channels to viewers. Actually, this was most a requirement of broadcast, but cable was so desperate to come in that they largely just adopted the, pro uh, the practices of broadcast wholesale. But how else could television be organized, be made, what business models might better fit the affordances of broadband distribution? These were big questions requiring bold thought leadership. But mostly, the conversation focused on how many millennials were watching YouTube and comparing HBO and Netflix. 
So a quick digression here on, on approach. And I'm trying to spin this a bit as a story, as a narrative, as it, as it goes through the, the chronological history. Um, but I want to underline the way in which this started from research questions, that most generally the two I laid out at the beginning, um, that were investigated by going back through trade archives um, to identify what the chronology of change and, and building that story. That's not, that's not, that's not, this is not a secondary source. That history is mine. Um, and once I identified what those key moments were, digging in and, and trying to understand those more deeply, which I've done through um, interviews, as I mentioned, with folks working in the industry um, and creatives at the time. In terms of approach, I'm drawing most from the French cultural industries scholarship. Um, and these are scholars who identify the logics of media industries and work to discern patterns of behavior as well as possibilities foreclosed by the difficulty of deviating from the established logics to develop critical understandings of these industries and the creative possibilities they encourage. Uh, Thompson, who is not French but is a sociologist of culture, explains logics as the set of factors that determine the conditions under which individual agents and organizations participate in the field. So the fact that I'm looking at this at the level of uh, and identifying individual agents and organizations distinguishes this approach from what might be the dominant strand of political economy, at least in the US, that tends to look at more macro level uh, structural structures and converses, and it does converse very much, with cultural studies approaches to cultural production. The tools of cultural industries research are ideally suited to investigating the disruption created by the emergence of a post-network era of broadband distribution for US television, as it is clear that much of what was known of the business of television has been disrupted by shifts in distribution technologies. Constructing the story required a systematic process of analysis, and it's a foundation from which I'm now able to dive into some deeper critical investigation of why the shift to digital, broad, digital and broadband distribution matters according to the intertwined interests of the last slide. Um, so just to position a little bit, you know, why, what does it mean to come from an industry's perspective or be focused as an industry scholar? These questions interest me because I'm interested not just in how industries function, but about answering questions about how shifts in the, any, kind, any piece of the mode of production then leads to different creative conditions for those making media, um, how it leads to changes in what kind of text can be made, and then sort of all of that leads to a different experience uh, or role of the medium in culture. Um, and you'll see there are no arrows here. I'm not suggesting that it's only one way. I think right now we actually have a very nice example of the way in which it, it feeds back in other ways, and that way in which the emergence of Netflix and the kind of experience of video content that it offered audiences and the audience's gravitation to that use has now forced the industry into changing its structures and many of its behaviors and logics. So the chapters that uh, make up this third uh, section, and, and I chose to give a general overview rather than a, a deep dive into any one of these topics because I felt like it would give a better sense of, of the project overall. Um, but you can see some of the, the earlier chapters in the section are focused on exploring and explaining some of the technological shifts, um, Netflix over the top, and then um, in the response MVPDs are multi-channel video programming distributors, also known as Comcast, DirecTV, those services. Um, so their response uh, to the threat of Netflix through offering uh, much more expanded video on demand capabilities. 
Um, and then we pivot back to picking up the program story. And, and The Walking Dead is really the next important moment. Uh, the Walking Dead, although this isn't the focus of the chapter, but The Walking Dead is the first cable series that attracts audiences of the same size as broad, the broadcast network shows generally do. Um, although we talk about sort of these successes previously, you know, cable series in earlier in the 2000s, now a strong performance was a show that gathered two million viewers. Um, Walking Dead's regularly coming in around 10. Um, but the story that, or what I'm doing there, and the way I use the programs throughout the book, is often to explore a shift in, in business strategy. And so in that context, The Walking Dead is important because it's the first show AMC Studios produces. Before that, AMC had, um, they contracted with Lionsgate for Mad Men and Sony for Breaking Bad. And this is emblematic of something that was going on everywhere in the cable industry at this point, and the creation of their own studios in order to manage and own the intellectual property on an ongoing basis, um, which is an important shift uh, to vertical integration, which I will talk about more. Uh, and then Game of Thrones and House of Cards, although mostly Game of Thrones, um, as the emergence of the global blockbuster, which is not to say I, I think this is like this new common form, um, but talking about how HBO's existing international uh, infrastructure enabled it to make the shift in the last season to release the show um, at the same time around the globe. Um, and, and House of Cards is mentioned here um, because Netflix even more so uh, has this capability going forward. And, and the idea of, a, of shows circulating internationally at the same time is really uh, a, a new development in, in television. And then a little bit more about some global shifts uh, occurring at this time. So I, I'm not entirely sure, she says, uh, where and how the book ends. When I started this project, I thought it was a longer trajectory. I was imagining by 2020, this, this would we be pulling things together. Um, but 2015 ended up being a year of unexpectedly swift change as the legacy providers moved into creating broadband distributed services, um, both what, are, what I'm calling at least portals. So I'm thinking about HBO Now, uh, CBS All Access, uh, CISO in just the past few months. Uh, for those of you with preschoolers, you might know Noggin. Um, so these are broadband delivered uh, places to access long-form content from the legacy industries. So there's that piece that emerged in 2015, and also the emergence of, of what are being called skinny bundles. And, and what skinny bundles are, are, again, they're delivered by broadband, and that's an effort to, in some ways, replicate the packages provided by cable services. Uh, the best-known one at this point is what Sling TV is offering, uh, but Sony has a service in, in limited markets, uh, and Verizon has made some moves, and, and those shifts uh, to repackage or to allow more flexibility in how you access content um, has led to um, moves from the legacy industry. Uh, Boston was in, has interestingly been the test market, I think, for the new Comcast service called Stream, um, which allows you to subscribe to Comcast and only receive uh, basic or the broadcast channels and HBO and, of course, internet service, because that's the important piece of, of this change. Is, the cable service providers are you know, sometime quietly in the last uh, five years, they became internet service providers. And so um, the implications for these change, uh, of these changes for them are not nearly as significant as many imagine. So 
So this is sort of the foundational bit of the book. And th when I started the book, I was imagining it as, as something I was hoping to reach a larger uh, audience. It wasn't, in my mind, a strictly academic book. And, and in fact, I was trying to not make it so. And so I think this, this history of what has happened in the last 20 years is something of broader relevance. And now that I, I, I feel like I have the story, I figured out to some degree what happened over the last 20 years, I'm now moving into um, writing some academic journal articles on these transitions. And so some of the things that I'm thinking about there um, are specifically um, what are the new logics and so that define broadband distributed television and precisely why have the logic shifted. And, and one of the things I've been trying to pull apart um, are things that happened at the same time. So there's sort of simultaneously and therefore conflated disruptions, um, some of which have to do with, with broadband. And broadband is important. It allows personalized schedule making, which is a new logic of the audience, uh, the pursuit of particular content, and relief from the tyranny of broadcast norms that long prevented control over what and when viewers could watch. But beyond those changes in distribution technology, the services that are succeeding, at least at this moment in 2016, are using a particular business model, which is again a new logic, and that of the subscription to a package of content. And I've been looking at previous antecedents not inherent to broadband because there really isn't a big history of, of this particular business model. So instances such as the circulating libraries of the 1700s, uh, video rental businesses to a degree, network era HBO, as well as what's going on in the music industry and the different efforts to package content there um, offers uh, similar experiences and struggles. So that's the subscription business piece. But then there's this other change that happened again quietly before broadband distribution, which is an increase in the amount of vertical integration in the television business. And so there, there had been a rule before the mid-1990s that television networks could not own their content. And so they had to buy it from external uh, studios. These rules were called the financial interest and syndication rules. And those rules were eliminated in the mid-1990s, about the same time that, that the conglomerates had also, uh, media had become conglomerated, right? Um, where you had studios owning networks and channels, among many other things. And as soon as those rules were eliminated, the networks brought almost all of their production in-house. And so it was the case that ABC brought, bought its shows almost exclusively from Touchstone, which has now been renamed ABC Television Studios. Um, and so part of that vertical integration was this quiet shift in the business model of television. And it was a shift, even before all of this other disruption, away from the reliance on advertising. And so again, before all of this happened, in broad, the business of television had gone, and I'm not talking about the studio business here, now I'm talking about those distribution businesses. The business of television had gone from being reliant on advertising uh, to really having three revenue streams. So over this period, the shift to a reliance on subscription, so the fees that are paid by Comcast to ESPN, um, those became very relevant um, and, and increasingly an amount of the revenue stream. And in 2007, broadcast networks started getting that same kind of money in the form of retransmission fees. And those are now 20% of the revenues of the broadcast networks. So that revenue stream has become significant. And then the third one, which is why this vertical integration piece is, is, is relevant, um, is the ownership of intellectual property. 
and the idea that the business of broadcast networks couldn't be sustained on advertising alone, on that business of trying to gather a bunch of eyeballs and selling them off, but of the importance of actually owning their intellectual property and monetizing it in as many ways subsequently as possible, mostly through international distribution. And, then, um, and that's why this piece of those broadband distributors came right at the right time. Um, because they were offering really big checks for libraries that weren't earning much revenue otherwise. So all of these pieces um, need to be pulled apart in order to fully understand what is going on. In terms of additional project extensions, um, I'm working on an article right now, which TL will see in some form at Northwestern, on broadband distributed portals and the logics of a subscription model. Um, and, and what I'm doing at this point is, is looking outside of television uh, to other industries. Uh, the publishing industry and the recording industry have a little bit longer of a history of this, this experience of digital disruption. And so some of, which, uh, some of it is I'm looking to, to what has happened there. Um, and also trying to understand the television business as having changed quite a bit. Um, and, and I think this project the project that's the, the foundation project, right, um, is something that's, I think, valuable and needed in, in a number of media. And so we had a lot of important ideas about what, was, what broadband distribution or what digital distribution was going to do that was written you know, at the, in the 1990s and 2000s, sort of before it happened. And we now have actually 15, 20 years of history and evidence that can be mined uh, for greater understanding. And I think there's a need at this point to go back and revisit uh, what was expected to happen versus what did happen and to better understand why what did happen actually transpire. Um, so what I'm trying to do is tease apart the consequence uh, of broadband distribution in a variety of media industries looking at different aspects like what business models have emerged, uh, what new industries have emerged, and what forms of distribution have been preferred by audiences, and then with what consequence. And again, with what consequence uh, for creatives, people making media or trying to make media, uh, for audiences, and the cultural goods that are created. So those are, those are, those are the big picture questions that are guiding my research. And, I will also just say, if you're meeting me for the first time, I'm not usually, this, this, this world sort of economics isn't usually, it, it's the rabbit hole I'm currently in. Um, but please don't think that it, I am only defined by these economic questions and business models. But I'm going to say a little bit more about that <laughs> as I finish up. So um, Bernard Miege, who's one of these uh, French cultural industries theorists in, in the mid and late 1990s, or 1980s, um, proposed that there are these three different models of media production, publishing, written press, and flow. And because you can't say things about media industries do this because they're all a little bit different. But these three categories help you to begin to say some bigger things. And so the publishing model, um, it's not related to print. Uh, it's books, it's films, it's albums, uh, video games. It's things you buy one of, typically in a transaction model. Um, so they have a sort of set of logics and, and governing um, practices. Uh, the written press model, which was newspapers and magazines, they're different because they're ongoing, and um, it's different than having to resell a new film every week at the theater. Uh, and then the flow model, which is where television and radio fit. And the nature of the flow model is what's actually being produced in the flow model is a schedule as opposed to particular programs. 
And so one of the things that I've been thinking about is how in this era of broadband distribution that the business of series, long form series, might actually be increasingly better understood through the publishing model than through the flow model. And in closing, I'm also going to be a little bit deliberately provocative um, because I have a very smart audience. And I think being a little bit provocative when looking at these issues might be helpful. To paraphrase Negroponta, the future of television is thinking about television series as we have novels. Ironically, it is the quintessential analog era publishing industry, the book publishing industry, that offers the clearest guidance at this moment of reimagining the logics of scripted television series. In terms of time of engagement required and the expenditure of leisure, a season of television is most comparable to the time required to read a novel. The book publishing industry is accustomed to an unscheduled distribution environment in which every new book competes for the time and attention of readers against other new books as well as every other book ever written, much like television shows increasingly do now. Publishers develop books without thought of time constraints or strategies related to constructing a linear schedule. They have built their business on understanding the rhythms of consumers' leisure needs and independent of underperforming time slots or coordinating the right lead-in. Far more books are published each year than critics or readers can read, so that a surplus of books has existed for decades, if not centuries. So one of the themes throughout the book that didn't really make it into a talk is a discussion of the changing quantity of content and the way in which in a broadcast era we have sort of scarcity. Once we get to cable, we might talk about abundance. And there's been a discourse, particularly in the last six months, about peak TV, too much TV, suggesting there's a surplus of TV. Um, that you know, In order to have that idea, you have to really be looking at it from the perspective of, of the broadcast paradigm. At any given time, a commuter train will be full of riders reading a current release, last year's bestsellers, and decades-old classic titles, as might television viewing in a post-network era neighborhood be similarly dispersed. Book publishers consequently have business models based on creating and circulating content that balance revenue from new titles, new series, new content from known authors, new seasons of established series, and revenue from a backlist, Netflix library rights, that account for the asynchronous consumption, surplus, and on-demand technologies encourage. As unlikely as it may seem, the book industry, with its publishing model logics, can offer considerable insight at this moment of profound transition in the business of scripted television series. The most useful offering of the book industry may not be in particular practices, but an offering an alternative paradigm. One of the greatest challenges to rethinking television at this moment of great disruption is being able to imagine television businesses in ways untethered to the logics of television's past. The book industry offers a long history of the adaptation of the medium of the written word through shifting distribution forms, hardback, paperback, ebook, through corresponding business models, subscription and circulating libraries, direct sale, and in, in the emergence of distinct sectors, trade, academic, instructional, that aid in thinking about the business of television in the different ways required by the post-network era of broadband distribution. Although subscription fees for access to libraries of content predominate among the most successful broadband distributed television services in 2016, this may be the logic of a preliminary era, just as circulating libraries developed in the 1700s 
before public libraries and affordable book pricing. Strategies developed based on the logics of the limitations of broadcast distribution and the flow model, such as windowing content, artificial scarcity, exclusivity, and branding, were valuable in past eras of television. But these strategies derived much of their effectiveness from the technological constraints of broadcasting. The flow of programs could be controlled. Audiences could be forced to wait. But do strategies of constraint lead to success in book publishing? What happens to a publisher that makes a title difficult to obtain or refuses books to release books in the formats readers desire? Readers move on to another title. There are always more interesting books than anyone can read. So too, now for television. The post-network era of broadband distribution and its affordances that allow for some sectors of television to operate under the logics of the publishing model remain too nascent to derive certain implications for creativity or social and political impact. As new logics emerge in coming years, critics can expect to revisit or relinquish many theories about television and its operation in society. More precisely, much reassessment will be needed. Established theories may continue to hold for sectors that remain governed by flow logics, but new theories will be needed for those sectors of television more consistent with publishing models. Importantly, Broadband distributed television is not fundamentally unlike anything that has come before. The profound change that has only just begun requires the creation of considerable new understandings before returning to the evaluations at the heart of critical analysis. The logics of the television industries continue to shift. Strategies of the moment can be discerned but remain fleeting. In time, new norms will emerge. As these industries evolve, we can continue to identify practices and strategies and consider their consequences and begin to collect evidence that enables us to theorize their implications. Rather than also remaining blinded to new possibilities by the broadcast paradigm, we can begin applying what we've known of other media industries as we make sense of television's continued evolution. And William's hand's already in the air. Yeah. So, Amanda, thanks very much. I can't wait to read it, and I'm really grateful for the rabbit hole you jumped down. It's a terrific way to compliment our ways of thinking about TV. And I have two questions, kind of meta questions. I want to start with your very last word, evolution. And ask why you frame your project in revolution. Because your work to date has been so good about showing the endless nuanced changes of this media. You looked at it in terms of programming from, from networks like broadband, and uh, you haven't noticed yet, but it's, you know, and if you throw into that 
or oh, was, Nielsen measured. Uh, Nielsen, but this is their total. So they're using DVD, they're using high delay, they're using the spectrum, platform diagnostic for their total audience report. Um, they're using three, they're using um, computer screens, using uh, television screens and phones, and they're using, I think, a two-day window. So all to say, no, no matter, but if I look at what's happening in the world of YouTube, with 300 plus hours of being uploaded per minute, there is significant viewership for short form um, media, let's say, short form moving image. And if you're going to set your your filter to only look at long form, to, 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 to make your argument about TV through long form dramatic programming, you're almost by definition going to miss those other activities that are that are kind of working outside that. My, when I talk to my students about what they watch, like, they're watching Jake, they're watching Japanese and Taiwanese television dramas, Crown Translation. So I wonder if that's not a, a like a, a characteristic of the lens you're using that yep. may not get to some of the other stuff that's happening. And that may account for why speedy bundles are suddenly available, why ESPN is to say crudely shitting in their pants right now about being disaggregated from the system. So. All right, so evolution versus revolution. I, I look forward to an opportunity to, to debate this point. And I, I don't know that I'm, I'm wed one way or the other. I think part of it is in, in shifting to writing for more popular audiences, and the, the push of editors in that direction is, to, to, is the splashier title and, and the bigger claim. Um, and I, I am one who has, I think, deliberately been cautious with her claims in the past and you know, not overstating things. Uh, and so I think it, it depends on, on where we are as this project concludes. Because I do think in some ways what broadband distribution enables can be argued as bigger than an evolution. And I think the, that, that the, the things that I've traced up to this far, it has been evolution within the broadcast paradigm roughly, right? It's all linear distributed. And, and that, that really is a governing logic in so many ways. Um, like consumption patterns are emphatically non-linear, right? We know through time delay, we know through DVD sales, Derek and Parr's work, why Nielsen had to expand his metric to take in a couple of days is because people don't watch in a linear way. Well, they, it's since 2000, largely. And the, but that's about the, technology bandwidth and you know, server speeds and all that. Right. And so, and I think it's also... And that's so what I mean by evolution, right? Because right. that, that technology's been there, but the capacity to really buffer adequately mm -hmm. watches is, is getting better and better. Right. And the other piece, though, is what audiences are and aren't doing. And so, you know, also trying to stay with where the mass audience is. And, and I, I want to take a look at those Nielsen numbers because I think, I know Nielsen has had difficulty with um, computer-ish screens. And so I, I just want to see how those numbers match up with their new, their new numbers that are supposedly measuring everything which still is you know, something very different from what Nielsen was, was made to do in terms of measuring advertising. But um, so I, 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 I'm sorry, I, don't, I think I have kind of a non-answer to that point in that I, I think there, there are compelling reasons right now to call it an evolution or, and a revolution. And because I don't have to, I'm not delivering a manuscript tonight, um, I, I, I'm not going to go one way or the other. But I, I, am, I, I think. It is very much a fair question, um, and and a and a difficult one because of of sort of the intervening variables. As for the short form, 
I, I think my answer is that's just not what this book is um, in terms of, and part of that is perhaps forcing these two questions that are only interesting to me together um, and wanting to draw that sort of 20-year trajectory because the, the short form stuff happens fairly late in the game and I don't, my argument at this point is that YouTube and the MCNs are the emergence of a new industry. Um, they're, yes, it's video, but I think that we can't define media simply through uh, what it, just what it is, but also its industrial logics. And part, of, and, and part of my hedging there is that I think the industrial logics in that space are still really uncertain. Uh, in that you know, YouTube read is, you know, has a new strategy every six to 18 months. The MCNs are still figuring themselves out. Many of them, you know, they're, yes, they're being acquired, but that's more because the big entities are afraid of being left behind. And so I don't even know that we have logics there yet. I'm really sensitive to the industry logics part. Like that is a crucial part of defining the media. But the problem is we wind up with a highly like, narrow-centric, American-centric notion of how this works. In countries with, you know, go to, go to, mm -hmm. there are countries that are certainly importing that stuff. If you look at indigenous production in a lot of countries, the whole production apparatus is quite another kind of location we have here. Mm -hmm. And I'd be loath to sort of write that out of television <coughs> because mm -hmm. it doesn't adhere to our norms of right. industrial production. So I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to its place right. in the definition. But to that point, I, I, I'm also always deliberately, I mean, you can't put all the word, you can't put all the caveats in the title, but maybe it's a second asterisk in that I, I, I almost always foreground everything as I'm only talking about the US industry. Because all, I mean, not only in terms of short form, but in terms of the public system um, elsewhere, and these dynamic, there are, th there are echoes, but you have, those, those stories just need to be written on their own. And, and, and so to the, the issue with short form, the other thing in the US context, is that this that the short form is emerging as a space that advertising is alive and well, and that it's not gravitating toward this subscription model. And so that's the other piece that, at this you know, in this moment in February of 2016, um, makes me see these things as more different than similar, um, and and needing to be understood and investigated, you know, every bit as rigorously. It's just I don't know that the story can be told in tandem or. It needs to be the story of 2012. You know, if you, the, the timescape needed would need to be shorter in order to encompass all of the variations in television. Hi, Fox. Yeah, thanks. It was really illuminating in terms of thinking about uh, about TV industries and scripted programming. So uh, I really appreciate that. So my my question is about. Uh, the way that you began, began the story was a, a story focused on a single factor, a single type of factors you know, that, were, that, that led to uh, some new practices in terms of uh, uh, innovation or distinctive programming, so the shift from, 300 to, from 30 to 300 channels. And, uh, and, but I could imagine a number of different types of stories. And, and so for example, a story, a story about <coughs> networks and changing uh, uh, consumer tastes at the same time as changing shifts in the film industry and, and, and so forth, uh, uh, and, and not just the change within the television industry uh, uh, configuration. And so uh, I wonder about, could, could you talk, expand a little bit about some of the motivation for the kind of single type of factor explanation for this uh, shift? And, and did you see other kinds of network forces influencing the, the shift? And, and, uh, and so that's uh, one question about uh, the 
these other kind of factors leading to the shift. And then the related question is just about if these were the factors that led to scripted series innovations now, what were some of the factors that might have led to scripted uh, TV series innovations in the past? So, for example, how did we end up with uh, Twin Peaks in the 90s, for example, without a broadband? Right, right, right. Um, hmm. Now, the, 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 the single factor question is a good one. Because um, I think that there, there are certainly other moments, there are certainly moments throughout the trajectory where like I think you, there are interesting arguments that can be made later in the 2000s about what is and isn't happening in the film industry as it responds to losing DVD revenue and while well, it's still trying to find its feet internationally that explains some of what was going on with cable as becoming really this environment for artistic storytelling. Um, but they're not a... I would, I didn't go looking for a particular story, but this is the one, I sort of like, this is the one that emerged. Um, 96, yeah. There wasn't really anything shifted. It is such that complicated moment in, 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 as the internet is emerging that, that it, it looked like there, sh there should be a, something coming from, from what was at that point broadly new media. Um, but in terms of actual money or nothing really made as much sense as this story. Um, and I think, so, so Twin the Twin Peaks is a good one and you're not the first to raise it. Um, and I think, so part of it is the nature of, uh, in that, in the universe of when it was just broadcast, there were some swings for the fences, right? And the the in and that's what's fun about studying industries, right? Is that you see these logics and they encourage certain things. They are not determinist. Um, and so, you know, in, oh, in the early 1990s, um, there was the at that point there was starting to be. I mean, it was cable that was pushing it in the sense that uh, broadcast networks, networks were losing audiences to cable even before um, they began original series production that led sort of to this new attention, what's been called sometimes like quality demographics. Or, you know, it was, the concern was the young and affluent viewers were moving to ca watching cable. And, and some, of our, some who study that period more historically um, have argued that, that that led to some of these experimentations in form sort of, I mean, you can trace a steady, steady history uh, from what NBC was doing with, with Hill Street Blues sort of before Twin Peaks. And so, I mean, importantly, you know, I'm not making determinist arguments, um, but more, and, and those, those, those exceptions are always fascinating, right, to try to understand how they came to be. Um, and I don't know the history on, on Twin Peaks and how that particular you know, thing that we never would have guessed network television would make uh, came to be. Um, and so, I think what's different about what I'm arguing is the emer I think it's cable's recognition after sort of all of, it's more than just the two I mentioned, but the, the sort of false starts towards series production um, to the recognition of distinction and distinctiveness as being the important creative strategy. And I think it, it's not only at that moment, but we continue to then see it throughout when, when Netflix comes on the scene. What does Netflix start with? Um, but this big announcement about um, 
two seasons, $100 million, David Fincher and Kevin Spacey. Um, and it's sort of, but by that point, by the time you know, Netflix is launching original series, we're, we're kind of at the point where distinctiveness is not enough. Um, and because you can't, it's, it's this abundance of distinction. Um, and, and so thinking about how the strategy, because again, the com competitive conditions have changed so much, the strategy must shift again. And that strategy doesn't work any longer. Sorry, that was a long answer. Is there a way to explain X-Files um, based in its position on Fox? dive into La Femme Nikita probably would, would help that. Um, it, it really but is, it, it is the evidence of talking to the people who were running the network at the time. Um, and the period in which it's being developed was really complicated in terms of USA's ownership changing. Um, and, and you know, yes, false memory can exist. It wasn't that long ago. But um, the consistent story for the people who were behind this. And um, it, so the case of the cable channels and their developing program is really different from a story about a network because they were developing one show. And so there was this way in which you know, there weren't that many hands, but all of them were working on this. And they were all very invested in the project. And, and so I do sort of trust sort of the number of battles that were fought to make this happen, I think, encourages, um, well, I, it wasn't just another show in the way that I'd worry that that could be a muddled memory. 
Um, but the folks at USA were very deliberate in what they were doing, and the folks at HBO as well. I mean, so it, the story at HBO was slightly different in that it was pushed by um, the so DVD. Um, in that HBO, in the late, surprise me, uh, how much of HBO they knew that much of their audience liked HBO just for sports. It's amazing what boxing could do. Um, and so, so that was a piece of it, um, but the other piece was the, the access to theatricals um, sooner than you could get them anywhere else. And so as the DVD market was emerging, there was a concern that the theatricals were going to be decreasingly a reason to subscribe to HBO. The other thing is that they had done a lot of internal research of their subscriber base, and one thing that frustrated subscribers and led to churn, which is dropping the service, was the, People didn't know when anything was on. So HBO had deliberately been very different from the network um, and having a prescribed schedule. And they experimented uh, with putting a, like they launched a, a new movie every Saturday um, starting in uh, the early 1990s. And they found that people who knew that they could count on a new film every Saturday um, had much lower um, uh, churn. Thank you. Um, and so that led to the thinking, and there's also an executive shift at this point at HBO. Um, this is when great, uh, Jeff Bukes comes in. Um, and there, so there was a deliberate sense to try to create more of a schedule. Um, but so that was that, that piece, that, that more complicated story is somewhat particular to HBO um, rather than, than the cable environment. And so, um, and again, you know, so. And there, there were other business forces pushing this, and so I, it, it was abbreviated. Um, so it's, it's the need for distinction. It's the concern as the, all the channels emerge that you get a good channel. So it's hard to remember how important, like what number you were on was perceived to be in, in the 1990s. Um, so that was one of the things that was dri driving the, the, the programmers to want to make sure they were standing out. The other thing, is, which is very economic, is that they knew that they could get a higher subscription rate per subscriber, or higher subscriber fee um, if they were providing something other than just reruns of Matlock. So, um, so the, the, there, there are a number of business-related forces that, that, that push this shift. Um, yeah. Just following up on the thread a little further, but um, so I'm really interested in the work of folks like um, Arlene Davila with Lemon Nosey, Driving when you're, you're 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 moving from 30 to mm -hmm. 300 a little bit beyond, and their their narrative or part part of their argument then is that um, this is a moment when uh, a, a mix of social movement forces with savvy uh, advertising firms uh, can gather together and explain to the networks that if they they weren't just thinking about the math the homogenous mass audience, which is unmarked mass, but it's, you know, it's white and affluent and can actually get a lot of value out of seeking uh, target audiences or the shift in niche audiences, which were, you know, I don't think that was talking about the right. making the Latino market. Sunders talking about uh, the creation of lesbians as a viable market, you know, target market. And I just, I'm really curious to hear from your, your research and your work and the types of interviews that you're doing with people, you know, inside like, how does that, it's a little bit like the fan 
uh, you know, question, which is like, is, is this another way of seeing the transition, um, or how, basically, how does that relate to the, the research trend that you're doing? Do you, did you see that as well in the types of interview work that you're doing? Right. So there's a notion of some categories. Both of those uh, scholars are making arguments about cable branding and, and the way in which you brand is, you know, the name that you give your and the identity that you try to ascribe to your channel, and then you're most successful usually if your programming uh, matches what your brand is. Uh, and and I think, I mean, my sense right now is that 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 may have been a very particular moment. I mean, and so it, it, what happened is important and can be argued as perhaps important for opening up representations for all the reasons that you note. Um, but I guess I'm wondering about the ongoing relevance of branding or whether branding was particularly well suited to that environment. And I mean that in the sense of, or I think we're seeing new logics emerge. You know, what is the brand of Netflix? Well, that's one show, uh, right? I mean, so, so I think we've got two different uh, things tied up here. So one is this question of how do we get content for or what institutional structures make it possible for us to have a broader array of content that speaks to uh, a broader uh, array of demographic groups? Okay. And, and, and that, um, certainly, the shift to narrow casting that occurs con with cable is part of that. Um, it, it's, it's, but I'm not sure where what happens with that as we pivot into um, the broadband realm, and, I, and part of that, and I don't mean to suggest skepticism so much as this is early days. I mean, so in some ways, we're see, we see, you know, this is, I'm not as familiar with cases um, targeting either of those audiences, but the work of A.J. Christian um, looking at uh, black self-representation in YouTube um, has been interesting, and as, you know, artists having access to a platform to make their own media because they can't get the industry to make media that targets them and speaks their stories. Um, but what's the, the trajectory at, at, at this moment um, has been um, the hiring of a lot of that talent, um, Issa Rae um, and the other black and sexy TV folks um, getting hired into the industry. Uh, and, and, and we just, and the things that they've created or will create hasn't, has, they haven't emerged yet, and I don't know, we don't know yet if they will emerge. And so I think the, the next chapter, let's say, in Davia and, and Catherine's work may be the way in which um, broadband distribution creates platforms that are actually even, allow even greater self-expression than um, the really, I mean, at the end of the day, I'd say what happened on cable channels, like it was good to have content that acknowledged that you know, gay people exist and, and, and Latinos, but it really was fairly sanitized relative to, let's say, what really is content created, uh, self-created content, self-representation. And so, <laughs> dinner almost went everywhere. Uh, so I guess at, at this moment of uncertain future, I would say the hopeful story is that um, having a distribution platform without the barriers to entry uh, doesn't just create the sort of ghettoized area where ex external to the industry, um, you know, these other representations and stories exist, but it's actually that the industry comes to realize that um, 
there is a bigger storytelling universe than the one that it has continued to dwell in.